Hello and welcome everybody to this week's Truth to Power Happy Hour here on Forward Radio. We gather at the end of the work week for community conversations uh, every week, and I don't know that happy hour is the right word to use for this week's topic, I'm afraid. Uh, I'm sure we will find moments of joy and things to celebrate as well, but we are gathering this week for a really important conversation that we haven't had here on Forward Radio before, so I am super, super excited to cover this topic. We're going to talk about the situation in Myanmar, formerly known as Burma, uh, you may have heard in the news about a military coup. What an incredible history this nation has. We are going to dive deep into the situation in Myanmar this week on Truth to Power. My name is Justin Mogg. I'm one of the programmers here on Forward Radio, and I'm delighted to have in the studio with me, in the virtual studio for this conversation, our usual co-host, Doug Lowry from Forward Radio's community partner, the Swords of Justice Network. Welcome back, Doug. Doug, good to have you here. Thanks. Glad to be here. Great. And we've also got uh, several guests with us uh, who are experts or more knowledgeable than me, anyway, about the situation in Myanmar, uh, which I'm excited about. Uh, we've got a couple folks from Kentucky Refugees Ministries here. Uh, if you don't know about the work of KRM, we invite you to play along at home by going to kyrm.org. That is the place to go to learn more about uh, Kentucky Refugee Ministries. Uh, we've got Adrian Eisenmanger, Family and Youth Services Manager and Program Leader. Welcome, Adrian. Thank you so much. Very happy to be here. Yay. Good to have you here. And we also have Megan Floyd, Youth Services Coordinator. Welcome, Megan. Hey, everyone. Great to have you joining us. And we've also got on the line with us in the virtual studio, Ene Thaw, who is a former refugee from an ethnic minority from Burma who has been in U.S. for 13 years now uh, and one of the community yep. leaders of the current. Thanks, community. Justin, for having me. Welcome. If you if you notice some stray noise in the background, uh, Anathaw is joining us from a clinic, right? Are you OK? What's going on? Yeah, I'm still alive, still breathing. <laughs> Doing good. It wasn't the military police beating you up, was it? <laughs> no, but they tried to get rid of me, but I'm just a form of resistance here. Yeah, okay. <laughs> I'm so delighted that you took the time to join us, even from the clinic. Uh, we also have joining us on the line David Leon, a former uh, political science student and Myanmar native. Hopefully he can join us in a minute. We're trying to get uh, get contact through through the to David uh, as well. This is going to be a great conversation. Uh, there's so much going on in the news uh, with with respect to Myanmar, and yet I still think you know our listeners are probably fairly ignorant of some of the historical roots of this and some of the broader political context. Uh, so let's try and dive deeper than the headlines. But uh, who would like to go first and give us sort of a, a, a brief update on what's what the situation is currently? Meg, it might be a suitable person to go. Okay, since... go ahead. If we want to start with the current events going on in Myanmar, the the military seized power from the democratically elected leaders on February 1st of this year. So it has been almost a full month since they have jailed Aung San Suu Kyi and other leaders from the National League for Democracy. And protests have happened widespread throughout the country, with a lot of action being in Yangon, um, trying to overthrow this coup. But General Min Ong Lang 
and and if I may need to correct my pronunciation there, um, <laughs> but has said that he's going to remain in power with the military for one year before they will hold civilian elections again. Wow. And this comes on the heels of a recent Democratic election. Is that correct? Yes. Um, in November 2020, Aung San Suu Kyi and the NLD won re-election in a landslide after first coming into power in 2015. And that threatened the military's grasp on power that is written into the Constitution from 2008. So they, it triggered um, claims of electoral fraud that are largely unfounded as a matter to claw back some power. Yeah, one thing I add to that is that the uh, military general, Mi'olai, he is using the political rhetoric that we have seen in the past president, remember? Um, the the claim of um, voting irregularity, mass voting irregularity. So that's uh, something that uh, I found it uh, very interesting when we have a politician at Washington, Washington DC utter this political political rhetoric. There are other parts of places where people, not only they utter it, but they act upon it. Well, uh, I, I almost meant to start the conversation out with this, because uh, here's, here's a question that's been on my mind. For progressives and social justice-minded folks, what is the right term to use for this Southeast <laughs> Asian nation? Uh, Burma was the name I grew up in the 80s you know, and 90s hearing about and, and wanting to advocate for freedom of the, the Burmese people. Uh, but then the military came in and renamed it Myanmar. So what do we do? Uh, for me, you, you see here, uh, in the past, I have used the name Burma just because I grew up using the Burma. And it was not uh, new that uh, as ethnic person, we call it Burma. And it is what we're getting used to until the 90s when the Burma uh, military came over and took, you know, the country and started to change all names and all that. But at the time, we could not accept that. And so we refused to call it Myanmar. Even even the United States government, it's still today, it refused to call it Myanmar. However, since the last time I traveled back to the country, uh, I have seen many newer generations, the one who have not be aware of the political repression or the historic context. They're very proud to call it Myanmar. They call themselves Myanmar people rather than Burmese. So get it to talk with them, get it to eat with them, get it to uh, study and learn with them. When I came back to the country, I don't have any problem to call it Myanmar, Burma. I use it interchangeably. I see. Okay. <laughs> so I, it's not particularly sensitive issue, I guess. Uh, I mean, when we think about uh, you know what we call indigenous people in the United States, we always get ourselves tied into knots about what's the right thing to do. But uh, it seems maybe less so in this case. Uh, do we know where the name Myanmar comes from? Is there a significance to that name? Well, for me, the way I understand how the military uh, call it Myanmar is that they it is a native term rather than burma uh and it is the native language so they use it okay. in their argument it is more inclusive uh, they want it to be not just for the burmese but for all ethnic people okay cool and we do have david leon joining us now welcome to the program david hi hi it's so good to hear yeah, from you, you. so yeah, thank you for having me today so you are a native of myanmar as well you want to tell us your story uh, yeah, um, I'm from I'm from yeah from Burma, a native of Burma. I've been here for almost six years, and yeah, my mom is from ethnic Chin, and my dad is from ethnic Karen and Chinese, and and I speak Burmese. Excellent, excellent, and maybe maybe both of you can help help us understand more about the diversity of peoples 
in Myanmar. What do these different ethnic groups look like? And is that part of the tensions that we see today? Uh, yes. So there are around eight major ethnic groups uh, in Burma. And it branched out to 135 dialects. Oh, wow. wow. Language-wise. <laughs> so like tribes and stuff like that. So um, yeah, it's a, it's a very diverse country. It's actually more than 135. The 135 is the official number that the, 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 the government uses. It's actually more than 135. But I actually do not, I personally do not like the kind of, you know, categorizations of, you know, um, people because in reality, reality on the ground is the people are more, much more uh, fluid in their identity. So um, the kind of like categorizations that, you know, the government actually imposes actually very detrimental for the, ah. for the people. So I personally do not like, um, you know, the kind of categorization, but yet it's very, very diverse country. Sounds like the United States of America, where our government likes to divide us by put, putting us into <laughs> ethnic groups or, or races or <laughs> castes, right? Uh, <laughs> Just that's exactly what they are doing. They like to, it's something we, we know for a long time, they like to use divine rule. So they, they, they put this group of people in subgroup so that way you know it's hard for in terms of like political involvement in politics wise it it just much make it more difficult in terms of power sharing wise if you have so many group of people you know how are you going to get together right if the military is categorized into this group so i agree with the statement that uh david made hmm. Can you tell us maybe a little bit about what happened we we had a coup. We had someone who was overwhelmingly elected by the popular vote. But what was the situation before that, and why was that important? Yeah, uh, from what I saw a few days before, at least up to the coup, there was kind of conversation in the news and as well as so I, I've been following like some like officials on the Twitter, and they've been tweeting about you know this might be something that might be very imminent, and I wasn't like really actually paying attention, but. Uh, it actually happened on February 1st. Um, and then it, it have taken like so many people by surprise, including myself. And uh, the dispute that was between the military and then the civilian governments was about the election in November, 2020. So I was reading this reporting on router, uh, uh, some news and it was, mm, they were having like meeting and trying to negotiate over the uh, election uh, dispute and the negotiation did not happen. It was, it broke down. The military did not, the, the military keep accusing, you know, the other side of uh, election fraud and the, and, and also the Aung San Suu Kyi's party. She was also very resolute in, you know, like not uh, bending to the military demands and stuff like that. So the negotiation broke down, I think around January 30th. And yeah, the coup was the result of, you know, the dispute. I would like to add to that, in my opinion, you see, as a, as international relations students, there are theories behind why people act the way they act, right? And so, what I what in, in my in, what I believe is that yes, I agree with the common understanding or the what the military is saying and what the NLD what's happening with the you know the the claim that the military is saying and then you know the coup that it happened. I agree with all that. Only thing is that, well, what I believe is that the military act upon it, just not just because of like the NLD is gaining more support and popular, but also the issue with the election of President Joe Biden, who is more strong on authoritarian government. Um, that's one. And two is that you have a regional conflict between the superpower China and 
United States and with the military who have had distrust of the NLD uh, because they believe that a democratic nation uh, will lead to more ethnic armed groups becoming more emboldened, more in power or more equipped. So they take this, uh, this they, they, this, they uh, took power um, so that way when we know whenever whenever there's a military uh, coup and when there's a military run the country, they do whatever they, they can to crush down all these ethnic armed groups. Um, there's that. Another thing is, uh, uh, I believe the military uh, staged the coup is because uh, under the NLD, um, they were just not able to deal with uh, the ethnic armed group democratically. So I, I can see why the military would stage a coup so that way, you know, they can unleash their forms of uh, persecutions or to uh, to quash to to destroy uh, ethnic armed groups. Can you all tell us something about the Rohingyas and why that matters in this conversation about the coup and about the national elections? Adrian, you want to try that one, or Megan? I'm gonna let Megan. Yeah, Megan, do you want to share? Yes. Well. I wish I could bounce some ideas off of these guys before I get going, but um, the, the Rohingya kind of garnered a lot of international attention in 2017 when the army had really ramped up the violence against the Rohingya in the western part of Myanmar. And this was sort of a big turning point for the way the international community viewed Aung San Suu Kyi. But the way that the international community viewed Aung San Suu Kyi after she presented in front of the International Court of Justice and sort of defended the army's actions rather than speaking up for the Rohingya. Um, and that it's led to a lot of different things. Not a lot of progress has been made, I would say, towards justice for the Rohingya. And even in September of this year, there were reports that Myanmar had sent more troops to the border with Bangladesh, either to stop refugees from leaving or to stop uh, military members from crossing over to testify against the government at the International Court of Justice. So, and I know that um, violence will probably continue in some of the ethnic areas or outside of Burman majority areas, um, especially with the military in control. I know that Thailand is preparing for an influx of refugees, and I've I'm sure that David or NFA would know more about violence, especially in Karen state. Yeah, a little, a little bit to that. Uh, you see, with this persecution of the Rohingya people, and which forced more than well over seven hundred thousands uh, to flee the country, and you see, instead of uh, holding the military accountable and instead of speaking out against the military for its atrocity against the Rohingya, or such, instead went to the International Court of Justice um, and defended a claim of uh, war crimes, crime against humanity. And uh, in fact, United Nations uh, fact mission group have found there is genocidal intent against the Rohingya. But she went instead and, and re refused that there was no genocidal intent. And so as ethnic person, that is uh, extremely, extremely betrayal of us. And believe it that on such is the one who have been spoken out uh, for us uh, and so there's that uh, secondly as we speak right now as there's a coup uh, coup uh, 
going on as protests going on in the urban city. This at the military actually going on into ethnic areas, not only only in Bangladesh but to the current state, the Kachin states, and uh, unleashed its form of military violent method called the four cuts, uh, where they indiscriminately indiscriminately killing um, villagers, uh, burning down villages, is uh, cut down food supplies to all. Uh, uh, yeah, so I'm. I'm really, really concerned about what's happening in current state right now. Um, there's actually, since the coup, there are four, actually yesterday there were well over 5,000 uh, became eternally displaced person. And there's actually humanitarian crisis and nobody's hearing about this. If I can add one thing onto that, just contributing to it um, from within the Southeast Asian region is that yesterday four Myanmar tankers arrived in Malaysia to deport over 1,000 refugees from Malaysia back to Myanmar. Wow. So many ASEAN members are sort of caving to this pressure, not caving, but really refusing to take a strong stance against it and now sort of starting to facilitate arrangements like that with the military. I add a little bit to that because it's be very disappointing how the international community respond to the coup. For instance, like another Asia member, um, Indonesia, sent its foreign minister to Thailand to meet with another foreign minister for Burma to discuss upholding another election. And we know that the claims of election irregularity is false and that the people desire is completely be ignored by Indonesia and our foreign minister. And they actually met in Thailand and you know, Thailand is also uh, facing a civil arrest because of the military state to coup back in the 2040, I believe. So there's a, a democratic movement happening. You see in Hong Kong, Taiwan, and Thailand. Now we see in Myanmar. So we'll see where this goes. For our listeners who are maybe not familiar, ASEAN is the Association of Southeast Asian Nations, right? What does that organization look like or akin to? Megan, would you like to take that? I can I can try, David. <laughs> but I feel like as an organization, ASEAN's almost hard to compare to any any other like similar regional organizations like NATO because they have sort of a staunch non-interventionist oh. approach. And so I feel like when ASEAN helps, it's because they've been asked by a member state and not because they are taking collective action to correct one of its members. I don't know if you all would agree. Sure. Can, can you all talk a little bit about the scale and the scope? So a lot of people are not aware of how many refugees are actually in Bangladesh as a result of that. So could you all talk a little bit about that? And why does it matter? Why does What, what does the United States policy have to do with all these people ending up in Bangladesh? And I would have to actually double check to get the correct numbers of who's in, like how many refugees are in Bangladesh right now. My understanding is it's the largest refugee camp in the world. Is that right? So if you think about all of the refugee camps we see with tent after tent, people after people, as far as the eye can see, and take that and multiply that by four. So it's not just, you know, we talk about refugees in this very generic term. We talk about people suffering ethnic cleansing, but this is on a huge scale in an area of the world that is already beset. You know, it's it's the cyclone capital of the world. It's an impoverished region, you know, so it just takes something that is already needs attention and exacerbates it and makes it that much worse. So 
that's part of the problem. And I think for our listeners, we all want to know how does the United States policy uh, resettling immigrants and refugees is something that we know a lot about and committed to because of how that system works. But we also have a United States senator who has a lot of wields a lot of power in terms of policy. So I'm just wondering on that scale, how do we as people who live in Louisville and can impact policy or, or want to know more about it, how can we work on these issues? I'll just jump in briefly, but I'd really love to hear from from David and also from Inetha too on your perspectives. But you know, Doug, I think that what you shared about Louisville being a hub, we are a hub and we're growing by the day. And thankfully now with the Biden administration, there'll be lots more refugees coming to our community. But over the past four years, due to the Trump administration, those numbers were slashed time and time again down to the presidential determination for refugees only being at, you know, 15,000 people. And when you look at this bipartisan program from its beginning, it's been this bipartisan program. And, you know, in the Obama administration, the number had gotten all the way up to 85,000 refugees. And part of that was because of the crisis in Syria. And then for it to go in four years from 85,000 down to 15,000 or less, right? depending on how many people actually made it in, is is really an atrocity. And so I think one, I think Biden's administration leading from day one, you know, with the fact that they want to, um, they want more refugees to come to the U.S. and be resettled is really good. But I think you're right in that our policies as a nation have to reflect that as well. It can't, it, it gets top down, right? The president sets that determination, but then we also as a country have to, embrace that. And I really think that, um, you know, as far as what's going on in Burma right now, I think that folks like Mitch McConnell, you know, he's been in those talks with Biden as they've been trying to set some sanctions up um, against Burma recently. But I think the more that we can outreach specifically to him because of his interest um, over his career in Burma, Um, and his interest in the refugees that are here in Louisville. I think the more that we can talk with him, write him letters, request meetings with him, and recall the fact of his um, longstanding relationship with Aung San Suu Kyi. I mean, he communicated with her and even visited her when she was under house arrest, brought her to Louisville, was part of her, you know, um, coming to Washington, coming to the U.S. I think the more that we can put pressure there, um, I think that the better results that we'll get because he does have that vested interest. And I think too, you know, just, just really being vocal here in the community about it will make a difference. I know that um, David and a group that he's affiliated with Save Me in Mark, Kentucky did um, a protest uh, or a demonstration last Saturday, you know, downtown and people that didn't even know what was going on were like honking and up and asking what was going on. And I think that's important because our community is a welcoming place, but it needs to become even more welcoming, you know, as we're welcoming people, but also trying to support them in crises that are happening in their own countries too. I'll add briefly to that. You see, refugee program is uh, one of the best solution, I think, when it comes to you have mass uh, refugees population who live in a refugee camp. Why? Because it is a win-win solution. Uh, for both the United States and for the refugee themselves. Uh, I know this very well because um, I myself have lived in a refugee camp for 10 years. And what we know about refugee camp is that there's just not enough for everything that mm. you, you can name it. There's just not enough. For instance, food. Food is one of the basic survival of mankind, humankind. And when there is not enough enough food, people started to 
act in a way that they will not act in, uh, you know, when they have enough food. For instance, for me, like when I live in refugee camp, I didn't have enough food. And what I do, you know, I left refugee camp, go out of the camp and risk it myself being arrested by the Thai immigration officer or Thai border patrol. Or not only that, whenever like I scavenge for food, go, go hunt or go fishing, there's always a risk involved. And as a kid, and not only that, um, there are Thai local uh, who lives around camp that do not like us and have to, for, personally, I have to run away from uh, being shot with a slingshot or or get it chased by a dog or sometimes even worse, get a shot with a real gun. And all I want to do was, you know, to find food to eat. But as a result of that, I'm risking my life every day as a kid. And, you know, we, we shouldn't be stealing. And I remember as a kid, when my mother gave me money to give the offering, I refused to give the offering. Instead, I, I used the money to go buy food. And that's a great sin as a kid, you know. We fear of that sort yeah. of stuff. But we do it just because we can go buy candy or gum or that. Wow, that's a that's a powerful story. Uh, we're speaking today on Truth to Power here on Forward Radio with several folks about the situation in Myanmar. You may also know it as Burma. Uh, in Southeast Asia and the February 1st military coup and the resulting uh, people's protests that continue to this day. Uh, you just heard from Thaw. He's a former refugee and ethnic minority from Burma who's been in the U.S. for 13 years and one of our current community leaders here. Uh, we also have David Leon, who's a former uh, UVL political science student and Myanmar native, who's been here six years, and a couple of folks from Kentucky Refugee Ministries, Adrian Eisenmenger, Family and Youth Services Manager, and Megan Floyd, the Youth Services Coordinator. Um, can, can we talk a little bit more about the situation of uh, refugees or, or settled refugees, former refugees, if you want to say it that way, uh, here in the Louisville area? Um, I, I think I think people are generally aware that Louisville is a refugee resettlement site, but um, can you talk about sort of the yeah the scale and who's here, and especially with respect to people from Myanmar? I can share some, and Megan, you feel free as well. Um, refugee resettlement has officially been going on in Louisville for over thirty years. Kentucky Refugee Ministries has been around for thirty-one years. Catholic Charities. Migration and Refugee Services is also here as well. And so thousands of refugees have been coming to Louisville over that period of time. You know, current trends, you know, trends shift um, almost on a yearly basis as to who's arriving. Um, but in Kentucky and in Louisville, there is a significant population of people from Burma from various ethnic groups the largest being um, the Karen and also the Chen. And, you know, David is from the Chen community and Inaitha, specifically Phalam Chen, and then Inaitha is from the Karen community. And so they're very representative, you know, of a lot of the refugees or former refugees that are here in the community. Um, and we're still receiving refugees. We received a few, despite all the restrictions and the pandemic, we still received a few new Karen refugees last fall, and we've continued to receive uh, Chin refugees too, not coming straight from Burma, but coming through a secondary country and then to Louisville. Um, but that history is rich and strong. I think at KRM, between our Louisville and our Lexington office, we've resettled about 17,000 refugees in our history. Wow. And Catholic charities would probably be, you know, even as comparable, if not more. But across the state, they're the, these refugee groups, especially folks from Burma, are, are living across the states and in other nearby states as well. So very large contingency. And so I, that's what, one reason I think this 
this is so important for all of us to join in with because these are our neighbors, right? And <laughs> if this was happening to us, yeah, um, yeah. you know, I, I've, I've been thinking about that so much since this occurred is, you know, what if that was my family, yeah. right? That, you know, I, I, I would want someone else to be concerned and to be putting pressure, you know, on someone in power to try to make some change and make a difference. I will also, sorry, I would also like to add about this, talk about this again, because uh, personally, the refugee resettlement program literally saved my life. Yeah. Literally, I'm, I'm not talking about, you know, metaphorically, it literally saved my life. <laughs> the fact that I have made it this far is just remarkable because I have many friends, uh, uncles, aunt who live in refugee camp and they didn't make it this far and they die living in their, try, just try to survive, live another day. But because they live in a extreme environment, you know, there's always risk. And so the fact that I made it this far is uh, uh, for me, I look back and uh, there's no way I should not be supported the refugee resettlement program because here I have enough food to eat. I get to go to school. I don't have to walk in extreme environment. And not only I get to uh, focus on my study, but uh, I can use my talents to, ex to explore my talent, to learn about my talent and to contribute back to a community that had uh, given me the opportunity to, to study and to become not only that, just to also to become part of this American story or right immigrant story. Mm -hmm. And, I am an American citizen. Before that, as an ethnic minority, the Burmese military didn't give me citizenship. Wow. They deprived me of my basic rights. And so when I came to America through the refugees program and through the naturalization pro, uh, uh, program, I became a proud American citizen. And I get to uh, go and study like a, a, a great institution like Center College and to study about what is happening in my home country. Not only I get to study here in our city, but I also get to go back to the country and learn more about what's happening. And I can contribute that, um, whatever I know, back to the community. And my only, uh, and Louisville is, I can safely call Louisville my home because I don't think I can call refugee as my home. It didn't feel like home. Even in, I, I live in this shelter, there's always risk there's no you can't never really find peace in there so being able to uh resettle here to get to go to churches with my fellow americans and uh get to go to school with a diverse group of people who share similar uh story like you know people from burundi from mm. uh Somali, and and now there's another great conflict for yemen and yeah share a similar story and just get it to you know get it to share my experience with these people, get it to become American citizen, get it to vote for our, our president or senators or representative. It's one of the greatest things we as a refugee could ask for um, because these rights that we have here were deprived in a home country. So yeah. I like to say that support local refugee program like KRM and uh, Catholic Charity because what they are doing is literally provide uh, a space, uh, provide uh, give us a, a place to live and what they're doing is crucial for us to not only survive but to thrive in the city so i want to ask you a question uh, there are a lot of people who resent people who come to america from other countries can you explain a little bit about why people can't go back why can't people who are refugees in bangladesh now go back to burma or myanmar David, would you like to take on that? I have a very strong opinion of that. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I just want to say that, you know, 
we we have came here and then but we also kind of forget about who is you know left behind in the country and i think the most sustainable solution is to find the solution in the country by fighting for you know what is right so i i just want to say that under the military regime nobody's going to be safe whether it is burmese it is karen it is rohingya you know and um it is true that you know like for six decades a lot of you know impunities happen in the ethnic areas and then those areas um uh, people do not know uh, because of you know communications you know like there, there was uh, uh, they don't have internet and stuff like that in those days uh, but now like people are, it, it becomes more and more clear and then they, after this coup uh, a lot of impunities also happen in the cities and stuff like that um, so the most sustainable solution is to fight uh, for you know uh, uh, stand with the people who are uh, behind and it is so like, I just also want to add that, you know, this situation is quite different from, you know, the past uprisings because there's a sense in the young people in the country that, you know, this, all this stuff, it should end with our generation. Mm. So, uh, you know, like if you watch the Game of Thrones, you will see the break the wheel, you know, break the wheel. So like, <laughs> uh, so all this, yeah, all this stuff, like it should, it should, it should end with our generation. So like, what we so what I could do from here is that uh, we have started a safe Myanmar campaign of Kentucky, uh, and there are two main things that we are doing. First thing is to support the people who are doing civil disobedience movement in the country. So what is happening right now is a lot of people, like doctors, uh, teachers, public servants, public civil servants, and stuff like that, they are refusing to go to work under yeah. the military regime. So like uh, those people need uh, the support financially and stuff like that so we do fundraising uh we do um uh, a lot of stuff to you know like uh you know support uh, them uh a lot of people burmese diaspora across the world uh they are doing a lot of fundraising and stuff like that so if they continue to do that i think sooner or later the military regime is going to collapse because uh they cannot function the whole bureaucracy is not going to be able to function without the machinery of you know people so that it is, I think it is going to be successful. And the next thing we are doing is that we're trying to reach out the U United States policymakers. So as Safe Myanmar Campaign of Kentucky, we have so far reached out uh, Senator Mitch McConnell and uh, Representative John, John Yarmouk uh, from Kentucky. Uh, I ju we just sent an email and letter like this week. And what we are uh, asking is, uh, what everybody's asking is first uh, release all the uh, detained prisoners, including Aung San Suu Kyi, uh, political leaders, uh, also activists, and restore democracy and also end the international down. And another thing uh, we are trying to also trying to do is the um, sanctions that are, that could be effective. So right now they have uh, we have bipartisan sanctions against some of the military leaders. Uh, but I don't think we are going. It's going to be enough because it's only target uh, specific individuals. We have to. We actually have to target the uh, businesses that are actually funding the military. Uh, so those have not been targeted. Uh, those have not been sanctioned yet. So we are pushing for that. Pushing for those like the, the big military companies that are like generating billions of dollars every year. Uh, another thing is we are trying to get uh, something called. So like after right after I, I think a few days after the coup, there was um organization that was formed in Burma. It's called Comedy for Rep Comedy representing Pidang Sutludo, which is Comedy representing the elected parliamentarian. So any of those uh, you know like elected parliamentarian, they actually form organizations, and then they are uh, 
they are becoming more and more functional and uh, they are going to be challenged they are going to be challenging the legitimacy of the military government so right. they have a big support domestically like about i don't know 80 percent of the people voted for NLD, so they are going to be supporting the organizations uh, and we are from here we are asking you know uh, we are mentioning uh in the emails and communications that we sent out to the law uh, policy makers that the united states government should uh, recognize the organization as a legitimate representative of the Burmese people uh, instead of the military regime. So any kind of like diplomatic communications, official communication have to go to the organization instead of the military regime. And there's a one good news today uh, from the UN. So today they have a meeting at the United Nations in New York and then the Burmese ambassador to the United Nations actually told uh, the audience that he is representing the CRPH instead of the military regime. Wow. So it is a good, it is a very, very good news. Uh, I, I hope more Burmese ambassador is going to follow his uh, step and represent the, the truly democratic elected government instead of the dictatorship. So uh, yeah, that is uh, the things that we are trying to do. And also, I just want to add that, you know, like, we had Safe Myanmar campaign just formed a few weeks ago, and we are very inexperienced with communication, advocating and, you know, lobbying and stuff like that. So we are always willing to listen from the people. So if you have any kind of ideas, suggestions and stuff like that, you can always contact us, Safe Myanmar campaign of Kentucky on Facebook. Uh, also, we have an email called contact at safemyanmarky.com. So you can always like, send any ideas, suggestions to us. We are always willing to listen. Great. That is really great. And I will include the link to that Facebook uh, campaign in the show notes for the podcast version of this program. So folks can go to FordRadio.org and find it through there if you didn't catch it over the air. Uh, N.A., I know you wanted to jump in. Uh, yes, actually, actually, I do. Uh, I'd like to respond to our host's question, right? Or those who say that, who dislike refugees, say, why can't you just go back to your home, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, you yeah. have a place, you have land. Why can't you just go back to that instead of why are you coming to America, right? So I'd like to respond to those folks. It, it, it's crucial for them to know that the people who fled the native land cannot go back to the country because their whole village or their whole town is being burned down, like completely being burned down by the military campaign called the they have this uh, policy called the four cuts or similar to the scorch earth policy mm. where the place that they fled is not habitable for them to return right and not only that when they return you have like government say so you claim to have this land but where's the proof of paper where's your paper show it to me <laughs> right <laughs> so to i mean how can you uh prove it to them that this is my homeland when you came and burned down my village or you bombed my village and I ran away and I don't have any sort of thing to carry with me, right? So, yeah, those people, the place that they ran away from is not habitable for, for them to live. For instance, like me too, I cannot go back to my village because when my dad, right right after they came to our village, my dad went back to there and they completely burned down everything. They didn't leave a thing. Even like the chickens there, they will kill them take looted them look whatever they they could find it valuable so uh, not only that they plant landmines uh, mm. uh in our village and uh you see burma in the past has been one of the uh, largest victims of uh landmines um and so yeah uh these places are not habitable or for refugees to return and they have had like programs where they 
uh, instead of having the refugee to return back to their hometowns, they created like these places where it looks like prison cell. Mm. Where, you know, those people that they don't need a house with concrete or uh, running water. What they need is a safe place to live and they will thrive better than anyone in a wilderness. But the military, the government won't guarantee them that. And so due to that, most refugees do not want to return. Uh, many of them decided to stay in refugee camp uh, because uh, it is, think about it, if a refugee camp is safer than their own place that they used to live, think about how dangerous it is to go back, right? A resettlement is uh, one of the greatest uh, solutions we as fellow American citizens could advocate for. And from a personal experience too, you know, as a refugee, I didn't have to go into the urban city of Thailand uh, without documents, risking myself, get arrest or detained or get beaten by security or working in like extremely, extremely dangerous environment like the fishing industry, where a lot of people end up doing because there's no human rights, there's no legal papers that you needed to work there or just be out in the sea where no human contact. But the thing is that refugees are forced to find sick job because there's nothing a refugee can to do to eat. So that is why uh, a refugee resettlement program is in the interest of all of us because refugees do contribute. You know, they pay tax and not only they pay tax, but they work in an environment there in a place and a workplace where our fellow Americans are willing to work, right? And they're willing to do it. The refugee are willing to do it. Why? Because, they, you know, in the in their places, they have worked in a more extreme environment. And, you know, I'm not saying that, let's say, a plant here is better than in, in anywhere, but still, it's it's still, you know, give the in incentives to uh, work in the workplace, um, provide a safe home for the family. And so that way, they, the newer generation can focus on the study, go to school, uh, get a major and come back and contribute back to the community. And so, yeah, a refugee program is, uh, a refugee resettlement program is uh, one of the greatest way we can uh, do as a uh, advocate for as a fellow American. Let me ask you one more quick question, which you may not know the answer to. Where does Burma, where does the military buy its military hardware and weapons from? And why is that important in this conflict? Uh, two countries, China and Russia. So right now, the military recently have an arms deal with the Russian Federation. And yeah, Russia is like, they're kind of like supporting the military right now. But uh, to be on, so like the, a lot of the arms are, they are used for oppressions on, especially in the uh, wars in the, uh, you know, like frontier areas. But to be honest, we, we are trying to target the military uh, financial interest as an advocacy group so so like like i mentioned we we are promoting you know like more sanctions against the military um uh, military businesses we are uh, so like recently the united states frozen uh, uh united states government frozen one billion dollar of the burmese sovereign funds that are owned by the burmese government and so that you know like we fro uh, they froze it so that the military uh leader cannot access them but they are like from the news I see, I heard that there are five five billions additional dollars that have not been identified that are abroad. So we are trying. Uh, so we we are going to advocate for you know like freezing those money as well, and then we're going to advocate for you know sanctioning the companies. So like we're trying to specifically target the financial aspect of the Burmese uh, uh, military uh, regime.
I, won't, I don't want to say government because we don't recognize them as a legitimate government or so I don't want to use any kind of, you know, government. So uh, otherwise, you know, just want to tell and anyone don't use the word government to refer <laughs> to the Burmese military right now. So we, we don't we don't we do not want to give them any kind of legitimacy yeah. at all in any way. So, yeah. To see a full list of where the military get their hardware, Justice for Myanmar is a great a page to look into. An organization where it, you know, it, the state of Israel uh, uh, also uh, sell their arms uh, to Myanmar, Burma, and uh, you also have like country in Europe, I believe, uh, like Ukraine, where they have also sell their military hardware too. So if you want to see a good list, I, I, I say uh, Justice of Myanmar is a page to look into. And I think it's important to talk about Israel's role, how sometimes Burma and other countries get used as a proxy for other wars. So, you know, we've we've just gotten into a conflict in Syria this week, and it's all about other powers and the suffering that they wrought in countries that really aren't their country, but somebody else's country. Um, in a world of a pandemic, I think it's even more important for us to think about why we need to solve the refugee problems. Um, we help ourselves, I think, by solving refugee problems, uh, but we also help people. I grew up in America where the Statue of Liberty was a welcoming beacon to people in the world who suffered. And I think if we want to be a nation that, that we can be proud of, I think that there's room for us. We're a huge country with lots of space. We're an older country. We need lots of people to come help us out. Um, our mayor in Louisville and other people recognize the importance in our local economy of welcoming people from across the globe to invest and live here. Um, we have 10 to 12% of, uh, of our folks in Louisville, our people don't know. Um, so I think it's important for us to talk about why that's a good thing and how that's a good thing. And I don't want to over talk those people who have been so loud for the last four years about this, <laughs> but find me after this conversation. I'll tell you all about how I feel about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we have just a few minutes left here in our time together. And I, I guess I, I would like if we could end by focusing on the people's resistance movement um, in, in a way that's celebrating a bit of the good story here. People are not accepting this military junta. Uh, they are organizing in many ways. We've heard about some of them already, but um, the people in Burma are facing uh, incredible risk at doing this. Do, do you all want to describe some of the tactics that the military and their supporters, because there are some supporters who are joining the military to sort of counter protest the protesters, right? Uh, some of these tactics of repression uh, in the streets and in the media, uh, other ways that uh, the people's voice is being silenced? Yeah, there are two tactics. Uh, so like, there are two um, tactics from the protester side, the resistance side, that is, uh, there's a mass protest, which is like going on the street and, you know, like demonstrating peaceful, 99% oh, is very peaceful. Yeah. Uh, and then another second tactic is called civil disobedience. It's, uh, it's mostly led by the, um, mostly led by the pub government officials, uh, government workers like uh, any anyone who works in the public hospital and stuff like that, they refuse to go to work uh, a bank and stuff like that. So like bank, a lot of banks have stopped, uh, you know, like functioning. 
So they refuse to go to work. Uh, the rationale is trying to, you know, stop the, the, the machinery of the government. So they don't want to work under the military regime. So uh, they don't want to give any kind of functionality to the, the whole, you know, the military regime. So I, I think it is going, it is becoming, it will be, it has a higher chance of success than the demonstration. Because if you have seen Hong Kong and Thailand, there were a lot yeah. of like mass demonstration, but then uh, it just died out after, you know, a few weeks. But the civil disobedience movement have better chance of success. And then from the from the hunter side, if, if you compare it to the uprising in the past, uh, they have not done as much violent crackdown as they did in the past. Hmm. And I think they have learned. They also they have learned from also from Hong Kong and Thailand. So <laughs> um, I think if you compare to 1988 uprising, they were actually shooting people in the middle of the street. But yeah. then now they are not doing it and. I think they have learned to, you know, like just modestly respond in a, huh. uh, in a, in a kind of like situations where they can like control, but then not, you know, like overly reactionary, uh, so that, you know, the whole, you know, like international community is going to be more shocked than what they already are. But, um, that, that is, that's why, uh, that is why I think the civil disobedience movement is more chance of, uh, being successful against the taking down this regime. And then from the, from the Burmese diaspora, yeah, of course, we are advocating for sanctions and stuff like that to squeeze them financially for the military regime. Yeah. Let me respond to that question real quick. See, the military, the institution has its history of using violence, um, extreme violence against not only the ethnic people, but its own people, right? And the country is Buddhist majority country. And in 2007, when there was the Saffron Revolution, peacefully led by the monks, they this and they send out military and they started shooting people, you see. But what I really think the difference between the past demonstration and today is that today everybody has a cell phone, right? And they're all connected <laughs> to the internet. And so when you're going to do, when you get cracked crack down, you know, a group of people, protesters, better be careful because everybody has a cell phone and the world <laughs> is watching the military, what they're doing. And in the past, you know, there's no such a thing as cell phone that we have or maybe the internet that we have now. So information didn't get as past as that what we had today. And not only that, the military, uh, I know it's in their nature that to shoot, to kill, or to get rid of this protest, it's in their nature, but they're not doing it. Why? Because uh, they know the world will be watching them, right? And there's consequences. And so that is one of the reasons why I believe they are more careful in their tactic to in responding to protesters. Uh, another tactic that they use is rather than the military go on and started to shoot people or kill people, they release prisoners from uh, the jail. They released a former criminals, you know, former gangs member, and they paid them literally. There, there is actually a record that show that they paid these uh, criminals, former criminals, and they, uh, they use uh, clubs, knives, wow. slingshots. They go on the street and provoke uh, peaceful protesters. Okay. <laughs> um, and in the countryside, they release dogs with like rabies. And they release the dog with rabies to go into ethnic uh, places. And that is one of the tactics that they're using. Rather than, you know, responding directly to the protest, they are using, you know, different kind of tactics to respond to uh, protesters. Wow. And if I can just add one other thing with that too, is, and, and, and I thought, and, and David 
you all can share with us. I know we don't have a lot of time. It's just the violence, though, against these ethnic minority groups has not stopped, right? You have these protesters who are out protesting, but all of the violence that's out in these different states has continued and even increased more and more. Now, that's not hitting the media as much. So there may be less violence happening, but like, you know, like Anaitha was sharing, they're releasing these dogs with rabies. There is more violence that's happening in some of those ethnic areas now than ever before or in, in recent in recent history. Right. Over the last couple of years. And it's tied in with this protest as well. That that is disturbing news and and exciting news to learn about the resistance. Um, can we just end by uh, mentioning again how people can get involved locally? Are there local actions to express support uh, to call on Mitch McConnell to intervene? Uh, we're going to put the link to the Save Myanmar campaign of Kentucky uh, on our on our program description. You can find it on SoundCloud. Uh, is there anything else people should know about or anything coming up? soon yeah i just want to say that uh when so um our official talk uh talk live as an organization when, whenever we try to you know like um connect to this uh policymaker is to uh first release all the detained prisoners and the second and the internet shutdown and the third um uh you know step down from where they are yeah and then the fourth is to recognize the crph as the official legitimate uh, representative of the burmese uh, myanmar people uh, the whole as a democratically elected government so that is the most important thing cool there are long-term uh, strategy plan where we as fellow americans can help for instance like advocate for refugee uh, resettlement program um, and uh, support local uh, organization like KRM and Catholic Charity because what they are doing is they are the first group of people to welcome people there and to have these people to, you know, to live their new home. And the church's community can do so much too because uh, the religion community can do so much too because these people are facing persecution. And when they resettle here, they need a place to worship yeah. peacefully, right? And uh, another long-term uh, solution is to help them set up a nonprofit organization where they'll be able to use their talents um, because these people, you know, uh, they are teachers, nurse, uh, doctors, and sure. engineer, right? When you help them set up organization, uh, it is a long-term strategy for them to uh, help uh, to find a sustainable uh, employment within the community and yeah. they'll contribute those talents back to the community. That's a great point. I'm so sorry. We're all out of time, my friends. This has been very rich conversation. I wish we had a whole nother hour and we might have to come back and, and we'll definitely keep our fingers on the pulse of the situation in Myanmar and return to this if we need to. Uh, we support the people's resistance uh, and, and want Ford Radio to be a part of getting the truth out about the situation in Myanmar. So I really want to thank all of our guests who joined us today. Uh, the fine, fine folks at Kentucky Refugee Ministries, Adrian Eisenmanger and Megan Floyd. Thank you both so much for all of your work with all of our refugees in our community. You've been wonderful. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much for having us on. You bet. And thank you to our uh, Myanmar natives who joined us today. Uh, and and Ene Thaw is now an American citizen, ethnic minority from Burma, has been here for 13 years. And also David Leon from uh, uh, Myanmar native, who's a former UVL political science student. Thank you both for joining us and, and good luck to you. Thanks, Justice. Thank Thanks you. for having us. Thank you for having a voice to speak. Yeah, you bet. <laughs> and a, another great service that all fellow America can do. That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, thank you so much for having me today.
Wonderful. We'd love to have you back again sometime. And that's all we have time for today here on uh, Truth to Power. Thanks so much to everyone for tuning in, and we'll be back in your ears again in one week's time.